This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we're going to talk about Mark's midpoint. It's the turning point in the extraordinary story that Mark is telling about Jesus Christ. Before, Jesus was a mystery man. After this, after today, he says who he is plainly, and that means he must suffer and die. It starts by Jesus saying, who do you say I am? Just like last week. Only now we learn that Jesus is not at all who people thought he was. And then it ends with Jesus telling the apostles who they are, and they learn that their lives aren't what they thought they were either. So let's read this from Mark chapter 8. The beginning is like what we read last episode, like I say, but we will read further and get to some of the best advice in history. Peter's confession about Jesus. Now, Jesus and his disciples set out for the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Along the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They said in reply, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter said to him in reply, you are the Messiah. Then he warned them not to tell anyone about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and rise after three days. He spoke this openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. At this, he turned around and, looking at his disciples, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do the conditions of discipleship. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and that of the gospel will save it. What profit is there for one to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What could one give in exchange for his life? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this faithless and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his Father's glory with all the holy angels. So there it is, Mark's midpoint. The Gospel of Mark is structured like a modern movie. You've probably noticed the three-act structure in movies, even if you didn't know it. Act one is the inciting incident and its repercussions. The hero's life is disrupted and goals have to change. In the Gospel of Mark, this is the mystery man Jesus appearing, predicted by John and startling everybody with his strange teaching and unexpected powers, attracting disciples and opposition. Act 2 is the rising action as complications come along and more and more is at stake for the hero and his band of brothers. In the Gospel of Mark, this is Jesus going around doing amazing things, alarming the religious leaders and thrilling the crowds. Then, typically in movies, The whole story changes at the midpoint. There are a whole new set of goals and expectations. It's almost like a different story. The classic example of this is the movie Psycho, 
where what you thought was a movie about a woman absconding with money becomes something else entirely as both the woman and the money sink into a swamp. Or think of Sixth Sense, where in the precise center, the boy you think of as troubled psychologically is revealed to be a boy with a supernatural gift and the goals have to change accordingly. Or think of any Mission Impossible movie or other thrillers and action movies where in the middle, what seemed like a straightforward mission to stop a bad guy for the good guys changes and suddenly who the good guys are and who the bad guys are changes also. That's what happens here. For eight chapters, Mark has rushed from one miracle to another, 19 miracles in all, and says, do you still not understand? Then in the precise center of the gospel of Mark, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Peter answers the Messiah, and Jesus tells them all he will suffer and die. The apostles thought one thing was going on. Now they learn that the story is something entirely different. The mystery man who has been hinting at something huge and doing some remarkable things, healings and miracles, now says who he is plainly. Now notice how Mark says, on the way he asked his disciples, that phrase, on the way, is the first thing that changes here, as the goal changes and good guys and bad guys switch. The way he is going is not a series of good deeds to help people who lived around the Sea of Galilee in the ancient world, as the apostles may have thought. The way is now much more than that. It's not a path through the maze that is our world. It's a way out of the maze that is our world. And then we have the first prediction of the passion, we talked last time about how Peter's confession led to his receiving the keys to the kingdom. This revealed one important thing about the kingdom. It, astonishingly, involves the close cooperation of human beings. Mark doesn't mention that at all, probably because he was recording Peter's lectures as Peter's secretary, sharing the story as Peter gave it again and again in public remarks. In those public remarks, Peter probably didn't tell the tale of his blessing by Christ, but was eager to tell the story of his condemnation by Christ. That's because here at Mark's midpoint, Jesus reveals two truths so startling and revolutionary that they not only restart the story on a new basis, they restart history on a new basis. The first truth is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, who is starting his kingdom right here, right now, with Peter at the helm. This is huge. Caesar Augustus had transformed Rome into an empire and was revered as Divi Filius, the son of God. He steered his successor, Tiberius, to follow in his footsteps as a kind of king of the world. And here was Jesus establishing a new kingdom that would reach the entire globe, not with the Pax Romana, but with the Pax Christi, the peace of Christ. But the Pax Christi wouldn't be maintained by violence, but rather by submitting to violence. That's the next shocking thing that happens here. The literal redefinition of power from dominance to mercy, from inflicting pain to accepting pain. Many people expected that the kingdom of God promised to David, the great military leader would be a military kingdom, and that your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever, entailed military conquest on a massive scale. There was an expectation of a lot more in the air, which we'll discuss next time, but this was at least the assumption of a military peace like Rome's. Next, at the midpoint of a movie, the leader character has to make a decision, and others have to either join the hero or not. 
In one famous midpoint, Frodo decides to take the ring himself and the fellowship pledges to serve him. The hero goes from hiding defensively to striving forward on offense. Here, Jesus has made his decision. He's going to go for it. He's going to head to Jerusalem and die and rise. Peter has to decide how to respond. He agrees, but falters. When Jesus says that he wasn't going to conquer but be killed, it was too much for Peter to take, and he rebuked him. I like to think maybe Peter felt like this was his first test of his new job. So imagine you're at an important meeting and the company's owner points you out and says to everybody, this is my new chief executive officer. What he says goes. Then imagine the very next thing that comes out of your boss's mouth is, I also want to announce that I am going to invest all of the company's money in cryptocurrency, and I personally plan to turn myself into the authorities on false charges and go to jail. Well, what would you think? You might think, well, he isn't crazy, so this must be some kind of a test. Clearly, he's signaling for me to step forward and assert my leadership and insist that this isn't wise. So maybe Peter felt like he was doing the right thing when he took Jesus aside to rebuke him, as Mark puts it. He tells him that this is too much. It's unnecessary. Jesus should triumph, not suffer. Nothing so terrible should happen to someone so great as Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do, says Jesus. And did you notice? He doesn't just say it to Peter. He turns toward his disciples so that they'll hear it too. That makes me think Jesus is being harsh, perhaps for a few different reasons. First, maybe after giving Peter so much authority, Jesus wants to teach the other disciples that this authority is not absolute, that they aren't followers of Peter now, they're still followers of Jesus, and his authority is only derived from Jesus' own authority and only valid when it agrees with Jesus. Or second, after telling Peter he's the rock on which he will build his kingdom, he needs to show Peter also that his role is not to object and correct Jesus, but to accept and implement what the Son of the living God asks him. Or third, Peter's words are exactly the same temptation that Jesus was given by the devil when he offered him the kingdom for nothing, and exactly the temptation that will be given to him by the devil again. So he literally wants everybody to know that this is what the devil wants. Well, the truth is, we are all like Peter. Last week, we discussed how Peter is unique. This week, we want to see how we're all like Peter. We know what Jesus said about the cross, but we think we know better and can rule out the cross as God's chosen tool of redemption. We all think it's a test and that we pass by saying no to suffering because suffering is bad. We think the rules don't apply to us because we have a special relationship with God and he couldn't really want us to suffer. We want to follow other ways, the ways of politics and wealth, the way of religion that affirms us instead of denying us, the way that gets our reward now. Instead, Jesus gives us a different way. He says, first, the Son of Man must suffer greatly. That indicates that he won't be a political or economic leader. Second, Jesus says, he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. So he's not going to be a religious leader either. Then he says, on the third day, he must be raised, indicating that the reward comes later, not now. Of course, the resurrection is the key to all of the other facts about Jesus. His way of humility has power because it doesn't end in self-destruction, but in making room for God's victory. Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father, 
So what Jesus is describing here will be an expression of who God is and what God does. And who is God? God is the one who gives himself away. From the beginning, God made all things simply out of the excess of his love and his being. He gives it all to us for free, and we do with it what we will. He sends his reign to good and bad alike. Now, as he enters mankind, he does the same with himself. He gives himself to his creation. We can do with him as we will, even reject and kill him, but he'll go right on giving whatever we are willing to receive. This shows us who we really are. Human beings want self-preservation. God is self-gift. Human beings hide from suffering. In Jesus Christ, God embraces it when it serves others. So that's the general message. Next, Jesus applies the same way of life to each of us. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Gains in the maze of our world are not our goal. Victories that transcend the maze, even at the cost of this world, are our goal. But we don't want to deny ourselves. For us, the thought that it is possible to be a great Christian and maintain a comfortable life is not just a temptation, it's our default way of thinking about our lives. We give as little of ourselves to Jesus as possible while trying to give as much to ourselves and to the pleasures of the world as we can get away with. But if the gospel teaches us anything, it's that it is not possible to live a comfortable life and then die and go straight to heaven. Only a life of sacrifice leads to heaven. A life of cozy religiosity is usually just a life of self-serving pride. St. Paul points out that this is exactly what the rest of the world does. Do not conform yourselves to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, he says. Don't do what the world does. Instead, deny yourself, or as he puts it, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. But we say, surely he doesn't expect me to deny myself things that make me me. I shouldn't have to sacrifice my health. I shouldn't have to sacrifice my job. I shouldn't have to sacrifice this or that friendship or family relationship. Surely Jesus doesn't mean that I should have to suffer rejection by my own children. This is a cross maybe he meant for others, but not for me. But if you want to imagine what Christ means, look at Abraham and Isaac and what Abraham was willing to give. Think of people who are paralyzed and what is asked of them. Think of those who have no job or no friends. We have seen him healing people who are blind or lame or have leprosy. But think of those who stay blind or keep their leprosy. He came to offer healing, but he also came to offer hurting. This is a totally different understanding of God, and this is a key difference in Christianity. Buddhists and Hindus also deny themselves, but that's because they want to mitigate suffering by detaching themselves from the things of the world. Materialists deny themselves if it will help them gain different pleasures that they want. Instead of deny yourself, they may say carpe diem, seize the day, grabbing the pleasures you can, making yourself as strong as you can to get what rosebuds ye may. Atheists see suffering and say, as Richard Dawkins did, quote, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. But when Christians look at exactly the same universe, we see Jesus Christ crucified because he said, 
Anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Pope Benedict XVI points out that the cross is at the very center of the created universe, starting analogically in God himself. What does it mean that God is love? Pope Benedict asked. He answered, quote, Here we find ourselves before the most dazzling revelation of the source of love, the mystery of the Trinity. In God, one and triune, there is an everlasting exchange of love between the persons of the Father and the Son. And this love is not an energy or a sentiment, but it is a person. It is the Holy Spirit. End quote. If love is self-giving in the Trinity itself, how is God love revealed to us, he asks, and answers, quote, the cross of Christ fully reveals the love of God, end quote. After all, as we say each Sunday, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sake was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and at the same time is consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made, end quote. God's love made man is Christ on the cross. And our way to participate in God's love is to take up our own crosses and follow him. As he put it in his interview, God in the World, Pope Benedict said, quote, anyone who really wanted to get rid of suffering would have to get rid of love before everything else, because there can be no love without suffering, because it always demands an element of self-sacrifice, end quote. So what Pope Benedict is saying is that the cross is there at the base of reality. Jesus sees the cross, in fact, in a grain of wheat that has to die to multiply something that happens on the third day in the Genesis story of creation, suggestively. Adam and Eve and all of primitive mankind learned that they could not bring forth children and feed them without suffering. So the cross was there from the beginning. The cross was there when Noah and his family had to be saved through a flood. The cross was there in the story of Job and his family. The cross was there in the story of Jonah and the whale, as we saw and in the Passover lamb that saved the Hebrew families. So the cross is the fundamental reality of life even before Jesus. But the crucifixion of Jesus showed the early church what Christianity means. On the cross, he sums up his whole way of life. The cross is an icon of the Beatitudes, as we pointed out before, because Jesus is there poor, mourned, meek, and thirsty for righteousness. In him, we see the ultimate example of blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure of heart, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. The cross also taught the early church and us the seven works of mercy. It's an icon of the seven works of mercy because he is with us as the one who is homeless, the one who is naked, the one who is imprisoned, the one who is suffering. And he feeds the hungry and gives drink to the thirsty with his own body and blood and then blesses those who buried the dead. If being married for decades and having nine children has taught me nothing else, it's that the cross is at the center of married love and it's the center of family life, both of which change us and demolish our egotism by demanding our self-sacrifice from us, whether we like it or not, and insisting on love and forgiveness where these seem uncalled for. So the cross is everywhere. It hurts to love your neighbor. It hurts to love the poor. It hurts to love your family. It even hurts to love God. There's, but there's no other way to follow Christ. We have to carry crosses. We don't get to just gaze lovingly at Jesus Christ crucified. We also have to sacrifice in our real lives. The only way to follow him is to follow him in his suffering. 
You can't follow Jesus without a cross. Now, it's easy to think of the cross as glorious. We imagine the cross as a great badge of honor. When we take up our cross, it means we will do some noble sacrifice that God will appreciate and people will one day applaud. We imagine them at our funeral saying, he was a great guy, he sacrificed so much. But that's not what the cross is. The apostles certainly didn't see it that way when they first heard of it. They knew a cross was a torture device that shamed anyone who received it. And that's how Christians experience it. The North American martyrs lived outside in the freezing cold and they were tortured and died, and the tribes they were reaching didn't convert. St. Joan of Arc was killed and then her name defamed so that she was reviled as a witch by her own church for centuries after she died. In both these cases, their names were rehabilitated by history eventually. But trust me, there are many people who suffered and died on horrible crosses and were never celebrated or remembered at all. I would even say most harsh crosses were suffered without fanfare. Suffered in our cities, suffered in the country, suffered on farms, suffered in primitive times. The very definition of a cross is something you don't want and you don't get applauded for. You may think this is a hard message. How can someone embrace renunciation and pain? And then another thought occurs. Is there anyone who can avoid renunciation and pain? The fact is, whether you plan to carry it or not, the cross will come. It's absolutely unavoidable. So all that remains to be decided is whether you will accept it or fight against it, and who we will turn to when it comes. It's only in the crucible of suffering that we find the pierced hand of Jesus Christ reaching out and calling us higher. It's only in the pierced hand of Jesus Christ that we find our way up and out. How can we find the motivation to suffer well, though? One way to look at it is the way some marathon runners put it. It feels so good to stop. This was St. Augustine's advice to a friend feeling overwhelmed by life. He advised carrying the cross with enthusiasm by remembering, we suffer momentarily until death is swallowed up in victory. Then his cross itself will be crucified. The cross will be nailed to the fear of God. So the first way to carry the cross is to look to the goal and carry it confidently, knowing that it's our ticket to glory. But that can be impossible, I've found. So when I can't muster much enthusiasm for the cross, I've learned what St. Elizabeth Ann Seton learned. Simply hazard forward one step at a time. She said, quote, it is the cross which carries us, the weakest become strong by its virtue. But one word of comfort, as St. John Vianney put it, I tell you that you have less to suffer in following the cross than in serving the world and its pleasures, end quote. To see how this works, think of your life from the position of your deathbed and compare what losing your life to Christ and his teaching or not will look like. In your 30s, childlessness may seem like a great idea. The alternative is a future of constant work and worry. At your deathbed, though, what will take the place of a loving family? And looking back, you'll find that you did work and worry your whole life anyway, probably even more because you never allowed a family to get you accustomed to accepting the bumps and bruises every life brings. Or if children are out of the question for you, what looks better at your deathbed? The material gains of a life spent serving a multinational corporation or the spiritual gains of a life spent serving the materially or spiritually needy in your parish or community? All of which brings up the next thing Jesus says, what profit would there be for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? 
We grow up with big dreams for our lives. We want fame, wealth, adventure. What we find instead is the humility, hardship, and responsibility that come while never realizing our big dreams. Only later do we learn, like George Bailey, what a wonderful life that is and how terrible the alternative is, no matter how materially successful it is. Jesus also gave another bit of advice here. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's because the only person who gives up the world for his soul is free to love. You can't really love unless you are free, and you aren't really free unless you can do the right thing, even when you would rather not. The only person who's free to play Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, by the way, on a piano, is the person who has sacrificed time and energy to learn the instrument, who gave a lifetime of afternoons and recital days and hard work. In the same way, the only person free to live a beautiful life is the one who has chosen over and over again to give of themselves without counting the cost. The only person free to carve a beautiful statue is the person who has spent hours of trial and error giving herself selfishly to learning sculpture. And the only person free to be loving and generous is the person who day after day denied himself needless spending on Amazon and who did what someone else wanted instead of what they wanted day after day after day. We want to say we love our friends and we'll always be there for them. But we get too caught up in our own lives to worry about theirs and send a card instead when something really bad happens. We say we want to be the kind of parent who listens to their children, but we can't not binge watch the favorite show we love, and so we end up being unavailable when they want to talk. We rejected the cross so many times we're no longer free. Our desire for personal comfort is greater than our love for God and others. Unless we learn to lose our life, Unless we learn the cross, we lose our soul. The paradox is that the more you lose yourself, the more you find yourself. The more you give yourself to the difficulty of practicing, the more you give yourself to the joy of playing. The more you give yourself to suffer for others, the more you immerse yourself in the beauty of what real love is. In the end, the only way to be happy is to do God's will, and you can't do that without a cross. The last thing Jesus says here is, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this faithless and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is a statement he says not just to Peter, but to the crowds. So he's saying it to us. It's as harsh a statement as calling Peter Satan. He's calling us traitors he is ashamed of if we are ashamed of him. This reminds me of my work for an Albanian Catholic journal early in my career, where I covered the amazing heroics of the Catholic population there who underwent suffering, torture, and death for Jesus in one of the most brutally atheistic countries in the 20th century or ever. Soldiers raided homes and took away all religious items to destroy all icons, all crosses, all Bibles, all holy cards. As they marched away from one old man's home, he shouted out, here's one cross you can't take away and made the sign of the cross. And he got beat up for that. Then my work with the journal meant that I served as the guide to an Albanian priest as he took a fundraising tour through the United States after years of solitary confinement in Albania. He was a beautiful soul, but he was not refined or genteel in his manners. And we were having a nice little visit in an Albanian home in Los Angeles when he suddenly began angrily challenging the family. 
You have no crucifix on your walls. Why no crucifix? How do people know you are Catholic? The police, they took our crucifixes. We hid them so that we could keep them. Men died for their crucifix on their wall. And here in America, you have none? Are you ashamed of your God? They promised to get one, but that reminds me of all of us. We become so comfortable, we forget the cross, and then it becomes a source of shame. Well, he will be ashamed of us if we do that. So we need to own our faith and never be ashamed of it. Do you make the sign of the cross and pray with your family before you eat at home? What about when you're at a restaurant? Whenever I've avoided crossing myself and praying at a restaurant, I said it was because I thought it would offend others. But then I found on further self-reflection that what I was really afraid of was looking pious, not of being offensive. I was the one who was some way offended by the sign of the cross, not them. We all need to be more like Mariah Bridges. Mariah Bridges was a senior class president at Beaver High School in Beaver County, Pennsylvania, who graduated in 2017. At her graduation speech, she planned to mention who is most important to her, Jesus Christ. But the school's administrators made her take those references out of her speech. She did, but then at the very end of her speech, she said, I've always been a rule follower. When they said not to chew gum, I didn't chew gum. When they said not to use your cell phone, I didn't use my cell phone. But today, in the spirit of defying expectations, and for perhaps the last time at this podium, I say in the righteous name of Jesus Christ, amen. So let's join her and the good Catholics of Albania and stop being ashamed of our faith in public places, just as Jesus wasn't ashamed of the cross. That's the message of Mark's midpoint, the pivot scene in his action-packed gospel. We're still in the middle of Act 2. I didn't mention what happens in Act 3 of the typical story. You'll have to wait and find out. Providentially, we scheduled to record this episode on Mark's actual feast day. He was a Christian worker who had a falling out with Paul, but later re-won his friendship. And he was not an apostle, but he became a disciple of Peter and then became his secretary. And I couldn't be more grateful to him for writing this gospel whose very structure means something for us. So St. Mark, pray for us. Help us to shape our lives in the cruciform shape of Jesus that you showed us in his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.